Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bytes podcast. In this series, I've interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation about the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's s-e-changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 82, with the title, Challenging the Toxicity of Bullying. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Nikki Eyre. Nikki describes herself as a workplace bullying expert. When I asked Nikki to describe her superpower, she said that she turns a bad situation into a positive, never gives up, even when it's really tough. Hello, Nikki. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joe. Absolutely lovely to be here with you today. Yes, likewise. I took part in your conference last year and it was excellent. And you can tell us all about that later if you wish. So, Nikki. Yes. Toxicity of bullying. How do we challenge it? Tell us about that. Well, the first thing that everybody can do, Joe, is exactly what we're doing here, and that's talking about it. Let's shout it from the rooftops. This is a subject that needs to be discussed. It needs to be brought out into the open. And we need to be helping people to understand exactly what it is, what it looks like, and most importantly, the damage that it can do. So that's definitely the starting point. Let's have these conversations. So you said there, um, describe it. What what is bullying? Is it what it looks like, what it feels like, what it sounds like? So what is it? What does it sound and feel like? So the thing about bullying is that there's a whole spectrum of bullying behaviours and they can start from those really small moments of rudeness and incivility and go right up to um, violence in the workplace. Uh, So it can be, you know, physical or emotional injury that is suffered as a result. And there's all sorts of different behaviours in between and some of those are um, verbal behaviours, so talking about other people, gossiping about them, spreading rumours, shouting at them, or even not talking to them at all, blanking them, ignoring them, excluding them. And that can be done physically as well. So, you know, you get into people's faces, you encroach their personal space, or you block them from joining a conversation with just a small turn of the shoulder. Um, They're, you know, right up to, well, physical violence, which is assault, basically. And then um, all the psychological impact as well. And when we start thinking about the psychological side, this is really the most common workplace form of bullying now. It's very much about getting people to doubt themselves, doubt their own sanity, um, questioning them all the time, humiliating them, taking, you know, stealing their credit for their ideas so that people think, well, you know, they're just making things up when they say that that was my idea. Uh, So absolutely, people end up withdrawn and, um, you know, really scared to speak up in those situations because every time they try and speak up, they get punished for it. 
Uh, that's a very broad brushstroke approach to all the different kind of behaviours that can be involved. It becomes bullying behaviour when you start to get a pattern of behaviours, particularly when it's targeted towards one person. Um, and also when we're thinking about um, there's a power dynamic involved, which doesn't necessarily mean that it's got to be a boss. A power dynamic can come from just holding information about somebody, um, having a photo of somebody that they don't want you to share. It can be peer to peer. It can be, you know, upwards. It can be downwards. Bullying can happen in every different direction. And the area of bullying that I focus on is non-discriminatory. So um, I think of harassment as bullying attached to a protected characteristic. Um, but there's a huge amount of non-discriminatory bullying, which is, you know, it comes about just because it may just be that you don't like that person or you're threatened by them. There are lots and lots of different reasons why these situations arise. And I've been chatting for ages there, Joe. So I'll I'll pause for breath and let you come in with any questions there. That's interesting, yeah. Because uh, as I'm sure you and many of our listeners are aware, discrimination is defined in the Equality Act, and harassment is also if, if, if defined in the Equality Act, the UK Equality Act 2010. Whereas bullying isn't. So the distinction you're making is there is. It's not just about having a protected characteristic. This is bullying that occurs outside of the protected characteristics where you're using the word yeah. bullying rather than harassment, which is a legal definition as part of the Equality Act. Yes, absolutely spot on. And a lot of people don't realise that there is a difference in law um, and they'll use harassment and bullying interchangeably. And actually, in law, as you rightly say, anything to do with harassment and discrimination and victimisation is covered in the Equality Act. But bullying that isn't linked to a protected characteristic, it's a very, very different situation. So anybody who's in a workplace has to have worked there for at least two years um, before they have any protection rights. And you can't actually bring a bullying claim to an employment tribunal. What you have to do is leave your job and bring a claim such as a constructive dismissal or something like that. The other option available to you is to um, get injured to the point of having a psychiatric injury, a recognised psychiatric injury, and then you can take it through the civil courts uh, in terms of personal injury, which is very, very different to harassment, where you're protected from recruitment stages and you can stay in your job and bring a claim and you can get, um, you can claim for um, injury to feelings as well, which you can't do in the case of a bullying situation. So in law, they're treated very, very differently. And currently, workplace bullying is not recognised in the UK legislation system. I, I have some experience of this situation. My wife, almost a year ago this month, um, exited her role of seven or eight years with a constructive dismissal resignation letter. And you're right, the the onus was then on her to leave before she could do anything about it. And, of course, the company's response was, you should have followed our grievance process before it got to this. However, in her particular case, 
the grievance process went through the people that were causing the problem. And she felt she had lack of support or no support from her immediate team lead, her manager. And in fact, it got to the point where she went, she was told she wasn't allowed to resign with that letter because they wanted to remo- her to remove the words constructive dismissal and bullying from her resignation letter before oh, wow. they would accept it. So we had to get a solicitor and an HR advisor involved to to basically tell us that it stands. And here's, here's our reply to your reply. So you're further bullying me. You're not allowing me to resign. You're, you're making my, my mental health impacted even more through your unwillingness to engage and, and victim blame or, or, or my wife's blame. And yeah, it was, it was a, it was an incredible situation where, um, it, she she ended up instead of working her notice she ended up uh, signing herself off sick because she couldn't get out of bed she was crying her eyes out she felt she really was bullied by this yeah and you know what you've picked up there is actually the damage that it does to individuals and the grievance procedures in themselves um i can completely understand why you know if it's got to go through those people you have no faith in the system and the grievance and disciplinary procedures that we use are really not fit for purpose in these kind of cases at all. And you have to think about, um, are you prepared to do that to yourself almost, whether or not you go through that route? But the onus is still on individuals who have been bullied to speak up all the time. And that's where we've got to turn things around hugely because it's time for it to be recognised as an organisational issue and not an individual issue because there are working practices that allow bullying complaints to be more likely to occur, if you like. But even when you do go through those processes, you know, everyone will go, oh, we've got an anti-bullying policy and we've got a grievance procedure and we've got this, that and the other. The stress of going through those is enormous. And there's no really strong statistics, but kind of um, colloquial evidence, if you like, is that somewhere around 80 to 90% of bullying complaints are not upheld. So you've got a system with a, you know, 80, 90% failure rate, and yet we're still being told to use it. So we have to look at different ways of doing this. And it's got to start with, first of all, people understanding what bullying is. But secondly, starting to try and prevent it rather than allow it to go to that stage where people's health is getting damaged. And I completely um, empathise with your wife about, you know, that feeling so bad that you just don't want to get out of bed, you're crying all the time. Absolutely. I went through that with my own experience of bullying and it is massive, the impact that it has. She still has a, an element of PTSD from it because every time we drive on the, the dual carriageway that overlooks that building where she used to work, you can tell her she's kind of, it's flashback in her mind. So there's, it's not a, a thing that just f- fades quickly. There's, there is PTSD in this environment. There is. And uh, there's a couple of psychologists who have written a paper about workplace bullying trauma. Um, Evelyn Field, who's in Australia, and Pat Ferris, who's in Canada. And they have, you know, 20, 25 years of working with people who have been on the receiving end of workplace bullying. And basically what they said is, you know, there are a number of 
different um, ways in which that uh, this affects people. So it obviously affects your psychological health. And you mentioned, you know, your wife's mental health there has a hugely damaging impact. Um, depression, anxiety, panic attacks, loss of concentration, confusion, flashbacks, all of those things come in there. And that spreads to your physical health as well. So, you know, fatigue, um, muscle ache, headaches, migraines, uh, your behavior changes, you know, the tears, the angry outbursts and everything like that. Um, so there's all different ways in which it changes you. It destroys your self-esteem, your confidence, all of those different areas. And I know when I went through it, I always say that I felt like I lost myself and I felt like I just came a different person it was a person that I didn't like because I started shouting at other people they were coming to me saying you know it's obviously making you ill maybe you should give up but that need to fight and get justice for what has happened is almost overwhelming and one of the things that you get with workplace bullying is um, this rumination. So this constantly going over and over and over things in your mind. But also it differs from other kind of trauma in that you want to talk to everybody else around you. And they actually, you know, you draw them in uh, until they're exhausted. And then you draw the next set of people in until they're exhausted. And eventually you exhaust yourself and you just become broken. So that that trauma element is incredibly real. And some of the work that um, Pat and Evelyn did, they looked at kind of three different levels. And if workplace bullying is caught quite early on, then if it's it's what they call mild, a mild case. So they might just have had a short period off work, may even still be in work. Then there is potential to turn things around and keep them working uh, in a healthy way. A more moderate might be, you know, you're off work for several months and that's when you start to experience a lot of the symptoms that I just talked about. But for the most severe cases, some of those people never work again. You know, so they can end up on the benefit system and they just... They're never able to really let go of what has happened. But that's that moment you talked about there with seeing the building where you worked or it might be seeing someone you used to work with and having that moment of panic or that going back into that fight or flight mode, that stress response that you lived in for so long, that's incredibly common. And so it's very easy for people to go, well, it's just another HR case. It's another grievance. We've got an outcome. That's it. End of case. Oh, it does not stop there. It keeps mm. going and going. And it actually affects, you know, it's not just your working relationship. It affects relationships all around you. Um, friendships, you know, personal relationships, all of those things get that ripple effect is huge. And most people probably, if they work away from a job, they quite often walk away from a lot of friends at that point as well too. I, I used the word victim when I described my wife just now. And I know that when we spoke before we started recording that you don't use the word victim, although victimization comes out of the Equality Act. So what, what's, a, yeah. what's the best terminology to use when, when we're talking about this? So for me, I always use the word target 
because um, when you are bullied, you are targeted. So what tends to happen is that the relationship between you and that bully is really quite unique, which again is why, you know, we do an awful lot of, well, what are they like with you? And have you ever seen that side of them? And the chances are that people haven't because they will have targeted you or they will um, very much be a lot of covert, behind closed doors, one-to-one meetings type behavior that other people don't understand. But you've also got the, uh, it's quite individual in terms of what people perceive as bullying. So what might be bullying to one person might not be for another. So from that point of view, then actually, this is where we need to think about how is whatever you're saying being received? What is the delivery of that message like? Um, what is the impact you're having on the other person? We've got to become much more self-aware and aware of the impact that we're having on other people. And so from that point of view, um, when you think about that that person's relationship, it, it is targeted and in that sense, so if I think about my experience, a lot of what went on was in one-to-one meetings. Uh, but I I felt that I was treated differently to other people and they tried to say that I wasn't. Um, but they, this was somebody who had a favourite in the group as well and it was very obvious so, you know, he obviously did treat people differently in the team, but it's really hard to articulate things like that. And this is one of the biggest problems. So when we come to uh, trying to explain what has happened, you start to pick up things like, well, they rolled their eyes at me or they didn't ask me if I wanted a coffee or um, they didn't send me some information I wanted or they didn't reply to my email or they copied me in, you know, they copied all these other people in on an email that was sent out. And individually on their own, they don't sound like anything at all. So when you're kind of exploring, particularly in an investigation, that relationship between the two people and the target is sitting there going, well, they did this and they did that. It's really easy to dismiss that and go, well, so what? Well, so what? But actually, it's the fact that it is nonstop. It's that drip, drip, drip effect that keeps you in that stress response because you're never quite sure when the next threat is coming round the corner. And so from that point of view, you are targeted because something will have started you feeling that way. Mm. Um, and for me, it was a really clear moment in time. But when that relationship starts to break down, if that person hasn't got the self-awareness to recognize what they've done, then it's really hard to pull back. And if they keep pushing, and if they keep pushing, especially after you've tried to talk to them about it, uh, that's that's intentional. And we don't talk about intent in bullying anymore. We talk about impact more. But people say to me, when do you know it's intentional? I went, well, when you've told them they're doing something wrong and they do absolutely nothing to change it. That's good you picked up on that because I, I, before we go and record this, I, I did a bit of Googling. Now, 
what is what is bullying and what I got back was repeated behavior which is intended to hurt someone either emotionally or physically and I was going to ask you who decides the intent is it the person who communicates it or the person who receives it so for you to say that actually impact as perceived by the target overrides intent because there's, there's so many people who are maybe blind to their privilege blind to their manner yeah their intent is, is often positive or ignorant, but the impact, and as you say, it's the repeated element of that impact. Yeah, and if you think about the definition of harassment in the Equality Act, I'm talking about unwanted conduct, but it uh, actually uses a phrase in there, the purpose or effect. And this is the same as you know, what we're talking about now. So the original definition of bullying came from um, a case where a judge did their absolute best to identify and define what bullying was. And he used the word intent in that original definition. And that's where ACAS got their original definition from. And that was back in 2014. So relatively recently, even though there's been work going on in this area for 25 years or so. And basically, the if you look at the way the ACAS definition has changed, it included the word intent, then they just took intent out. So it was behaviour that could cause, uh, that could be defined as malicious, etc. And now they've changed it to actually say behavior that could cause physical or emotional harm and that last bit is actually quite a new part of the definition and I'm really pleased to see how it's changed over the last few years because hmm. so. I, I always use the example when people tell me what's the difference between intent and an impact I said well I use the example of manslaughter and murder with murder the intent is to kill with manslaughter the intent is not to kill it's a byproduct of what happened but the impact of both of those is someone dies so yeah it's recognizing the difference between intent and impact but the, sorry by using that as an example you go yeah okay i've lost a loved one of my family's died that person's life's been cut short whether you meant to or not i didn't mean to get into my car after having five pints and drive home and hurt somebody yeah. i just wanted to go home but the intent doesn't matter the impact statements you know the judged our courts now bring in victims or the the um the families of the of people who've been impacted to give impact statements which influences sentencing so impact is really really being taken into consideration when it comes into crime and other things isn't it yeah and that's really interesting because i've kind of thought about that analogy myself before um because it is it is like you say the outcome is the same and yet in bullying cases, it's all about the target being made to prove that this has been the impact instead of just being able to say, yes, this is the impact. You know, here's, here's my six months off work that the doctor signed me off saying that it's work-related stress, that I've got depression, that I've got anxiety. You know, I've got medical evidence here. Doesn't matter. You know, that was just, it still didn't mean you were bullied. And so I think there's a huge amount of learning for the medical profession, a huge amount of learning for businesses and organisations, but there's a huge amount of learning for us as individuals as well. Because one of the things that I found really hard was when you go to put in a bullying complaint, 
I didn't really know what I was doing because I hadn't really thought about bullying until that point in time. Don't think I'd ever had any training on it. So all I had was an anti-bullying policy and do a bit of work around it. And so it's like, I've got to write a grievance and I should be putting it into words that really show, you know, put my case forward. But I don't actually know what those words are. I don't actually know what it is I'm trying to prove here. And so that in itself, when I look back, you know, I've looked back at my investigation document and gone, well, actually, that is just incoherent nonsense, which I can now look back at and say, well, actually, the reason it was incoherent nonsense was because you were in a state of trauma. But as an investigator, I would I'd probably have come to the same conclusion and not upheld it. But that's when, as an investigator, that's where you need to be trauma-informed. So I think that's a, a huge area for um, development in terms of this work as well. Mm. So if we, if we take, I appreciate you're talking specifically about the workplace here, but I, I've had a lot of guests on this show who talk about domestic violence, um, abuse at home. And we're quite, I think we're becoming quite familiar with the words coercive control, gaslighting. And what you were telling me earlier about sort of how it manifests itself sounds exactly like gaslighting, not good enough, being uh, undermined all the time and coercive control being pushed in. So we're seeing bullying from different dimensions here. We're seeing it from the Quality Act against a protected characteristic. We're seeing it into the domestic situation, DV cases and abuse in the, in the home. And then we've got workplace bullying. Is there any yeah. is there any overarching view of this where we could look at it holistically rather than fragmenting it, or are they so different in the in the way they impact? I don't think they are that different in the way they impact. And a lot of people do refer to it as workplace abuse. And you're absolutely right. You know, the the similarities, particularly in terms of the gaslighting and coercive control, well actually you know, that is an, when you think about the financial control as well, um, people stay in jobs because, you know, they can't move on um, or they've lost their confidence and they're not able to move on. They've got to put, you know, people don't support other people who are going through these things because they don't want to be seen to be a troublemaker, she says in quotes, Um because they've got to pay their mortgage, they've got to put food on the table for their family, you know, they've got to pay their bills. So absolutely, there is an element of coercive control there completely. Um, And that can also go down into the way that people work in terms of, well, you know, I'm not going to let you have the budget for that. But I'll let that person do whatever they like with their budget. Um, You can't have any training, but that person can. So there are all sorts of ways in which it it infiltrates across. But the impact, yeah, I mean, it might start from a different reason, but actually the impact is pretty much the same Mm. for all of these things. And I think one of the things with kind of, you know, like with the workplace, when you're in a relationship and it's domestic violence, then there is absolutely, you expect to be treated well within that relationship. You, you know, you're supposed to be there because you love each other, you care for each other, um, you know, you're going to respect each other. When you're in a workplace, it's not just that you should respect each other, but the employer has a duty of care. And so one of the things that is sometimes talked about is the um the workplace becomes the traumatizer. 
So whereas some people, perhaps if they're in a domestic violence situation, they go into work, that's their safe place. Then essentially what you've got is people leaving their home and going, being forced to go to their traumatizer. Go and spend the day with your traumatizer. And so that's not going to ever going to make them better. And particularly, you know, if you've gone through a case, even if there's an outcome, even if your bullying complaint was upheld, it doesn't end there. So, you know, the workplace, the employer should have done something to keep you safe and stop that happening. And that's where we need to really flip it around and start saying, we've got to put prevention in place. We've got to pick this up earlier. We've got to intervene earlier and we've got to stop it going to formal processes because they are so damaging. The process can go wrong though, can't it? I'm aware of a friend of mine who has been the target, this is the word target, of a whistleblowing campaign against them where people lodged complaints using the whistleblowing process uh, to undermine their credibility in the workplace due to some nebulous events. And because the whistleblowing policy created was anonymous, it was, it, there was no right of reply, you had, to, you had to just sit there in a chair and take it and try and defend yourself without knowing what, what really happened. So we've got to be careful also that we put checks and balances to stop these processes being weaponized by by bullies. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about this a lot, don't we? we? We don't really talk about the person who's on the receiving end of these accusations. Um, and, you know, if it is legitimate, then, you know, a lot of people are actually shocked to discover that people think that they're a bully. But if it's vexatious, then there's got to be a way of looking at that as well. You know, you have to start one of the things that happens is that for any of us, we're in this situation where there's some sort of accusation against us. We're going to react with a defensive approach initially. It's just it's just natural. It's a human reaction. It's the animal reaction. You know, if you get trapped in a corner, you're going to come out fighting. And actually, what you have to do is allow people to have that initial reaction and then, actually, let's come back to this and let's put some support in and find out what's really happened, what's really gone on. Let's have those individual conversations, coaching conversations if needed. Bring someone external in if you need to, but actually start to have a look at what the real reason behind these things are. And, I mean, it's interesting because, she's, you know, there's a lot of things in the paper at the moment where people are coming forward and talking about things and it kind of, it took the first person to come forward. So if you're looking at that, then how on earth do you deal with it? And if it's a series of anonymous complaints, which is what you're talking about with whistleblowing, then actually there is nowhere to go back and so you know one of the things we talk about with bullying cases is that actually you should put your name to them because there has to be a right of reply so the thing about whistleblowing is again whistleblowing was set up to have a look at where somebody was doing something that was potentially fraudulent or um you know against the public purse or um standards or something like that 
it wasn't really set up for individual behaviours. And if people are starting to use it for that, then I think we kind of almost have to have a little bit of a pushback that says, let's let's deal with the right thing in the right way. And if this is a behavioural problem, then we have to come back and we have to say, um, you know, let's have a look at what's going on. If there is evidence of some sort of fraud or, you know, something that really sits under the whistleblowing arena, then by all means, investigate that. But don't expect somebody to defend themselves if you're not able to tell them what it is they've done wrong. Um, so it's, it is complex. It's really complex. Mm. In fact, it's getting more complex as we talk about it. So, it but yeah. It, 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 I've always felt you have to safeguard both parties. Yeah. The, the target and the um, the um the perpetrator or alleged because they're, they're an alleged, alleged. perpetrator yeah so yeah. You, you've got to make sure that you're safeguarding both individuals giving them dignity and respect and yeah. believability because part of this is believing believing what people say if yeah. you start disbelieving people then people won't come forward so it's, it's creating all that environment in a very non-judgmental way partitioning the two parties in a way that neither of them feels like they're being prejudged and it's it's a really complex minefield isn't it it is, yeah. And I would agree with you totally. Put support in for both parties. Um, it may even have been a ripple effect of this around the team. It may be that you actually need to put some support in for a team that's, you know, where there's something that has blown up in the team. Um, but absolutely, for those two individuals, they've got to have support, support to understand the situation from their own perspectives and from each other's perspectives support to potentially change behaviours, and I would say on both sides as well. Um, If somebody feels they've been bullied for a long time, which is what usually happens before they speak up, then they're going to have to have support to recover from that process, to rebalance their stress response before they can even start to talk about the situation. And you have to be able to do that But at the same time, if you put those support systems in place and changes don't happen and people refuse to take any of that on board, then you have to be prepared to make the tough decisions and hold them accountable. So absolutely always start with support, though. That would always be my approach as well. Yeah, presumably... Many, many of the cases that start get dropped quickly. People run out of steam. They run out of motivation. They, the trauma's there. They just want, I can't take any more. I just got to move on. The PTSD kicks in. They're constantly having to be pushing that, that zone where they remember what happened. And it's like, life's too short. I just need to get this out. So a lot of the time, we haven't got the stamina to to go forward, have we? No, absolutely. And, for some people, they'll just they'll vote with their feet very early on and just leave. But for the people who do start to go through these processes, then I mean, I know from my own point of view, I went through um, a grievance, and that involved well, I had to go and find the evidence because um, the bullying had been going on for the best part of two years at this point. And so I had to go back because they want oh, document it as soon as it happens. Document it. 
you don't know when it's happening. You don't realise until you've been in it for a long time that, well, you're not prepared to admit it to yourself, probably, to start off with. I wasn't. I was a strong, independent woman in a senior position. I couldn't be bullied. That was ridiculous. Um, so I didn't collect any evidence as I went along. So I had to go back and find it all. So first of all, you have to remember it. So you're reliving the trauma there. Then you have to collect the evidence. So you're reliving the trauma again. Then you have to put it all into order and put it into a document ready to submit your grievance. So you're reliving the trauma again. Then you go through an investigation. You relive it again. Then you have the outcome. You relive it again. All of these times and every conversation in between, you're reinforcing the trauma because your brain does not know the difference between whether it's happening right there, right then, or whether it's just a memory. And so you're reinforcing that trauma all the time. And if somebody comes in and then goes, we don't believe you and we dismiss you, that creates a secondary level of trauma. And so the way in which those um, formal processes are dealt with has a huge impact on how that person responds. So people going through that are soon going to run out of stamina. They're soon going to run out of, you know, become less resilient. And it is so damaging that so few get to tribunal because people just know that they haven't got the energy to go through there. And, you know, tribunals are being booked some like two years ahead at the moment. So they're not a quick and easy fix. And for most people, the tribunal is not about, it's definitely not about the money in terms of bullying, because all they do is put you back to the position you would have been in if you still had your job. So if you've left and gone into another job two months later, you'll get two months salary at the most. Um, But It's about being heard because through all of that process, they don't feel heard. They don't feel validated. They don't feel heard and they don't feel safe. So that's all they want. They want that moment to have their voice. And that's so much more important. And to put people through that just to be heard, not good enough. So we definitely need to make some changes. Yeah, when my wife left we deliberately waited for the three months and a day and didn't say anything so we we kind of left it hanging deliberately so the organization had to well reverse bullying if you like making them wait to see what we were going to do but from the first day she left she said i've got no intention of taking this forward but our hr advisor said well just hang on you've got three months and a day to sit on it and make a decision and we kind yeah. of decided that we didn't need to do anything to do nothing. So we, did, we didn't We did do anything to, to do nothing sort of things. We just sat on it and let it expire. Um, and Marie, my wife, didn't actually want anything out of it other than acknowledgement that she had been bullied. She wanted just someone to say, I believe you, and not get all – it got all HR and defensive and kind of – all these shackles yeah. went up. Rather than sitting down with her saying, you're right – yeah, you're right. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, we could have done better. We we we're kind of ashamed of ourselves, and yeah. we've learned our lesson. Thank you. But you never get that, do you? You never get that. It's always yeah. legal speak, and without I, I, I'll pay you off without accepting responsibility, without pre- without prejudice, whatever you, whatever the phrase is. And you think I just want someone to say sorry. 
I really yeah. want someone to say sorry. It's please. That's so true. And there's um, a saying that I've come across and it's something like um, the hardest thing I ever had to do was to accept an apology I never received. And, you know, that was part of the being able to let go of all of this and move on from it. Mm. But yeah, you know, that that is it. And so many cases would, they just wouldn't, they wouldn't go through any of these processes if they just said, do you know what? You're right. That wasn't, you know, we shouldn't have treated you like that or that wasn't the best management and we can do better than that and we're really sorry. Can we try again? Mm-hmm. God, it would save so yeah. much time, money, effort. But yeah, they're so concerned about litigation and, you know, we can't possibly say that that was the case. And yet, you know, if it goes to tribunal, then it's in the public domain. And you've got social media now and Glassdoor and places like that. So it's going to be in the public domain, no matter how quiet you want to try and keep it. Um, And there are also, um, in terms of investment, if they've actually looked at companies now and where there's been for example, with the Me Too campaigns or the Black Lives Matter, where there's been examples in the press of actually, you know, you've got problems in your company. Um, They actually did a piece of research in the height of the Me Too and it said that if you'd invested in a certain group of companies that had, um, you know, scandalous reports or whatever, however you want to put it, you'd have lost 20% of your investment as opposed to gaining I think it was about 47% in the other direction. And so the way in which employees treat their, uh, are treated by their employer is now becoming a key factor for investors as well. So, you know, even if you don't want to do it for the moral reason, there are lots and lots of reasons for um, businesses, competitive reasons uh, to actually treat people really well and making sure that they treat each other well within that environment as well. Hmm. I the other problem I, fa- I found is that it's you know, talk about the Me Too movement. It took a movement for people to speak, and I've been involved with a uh, it's a society club uh, in the past where we organised events and things, and people came along to these events. So it's kind of workplace, kind of in in outwork. So everybody visited this club rather than it being an organisation's event. So it's, a, it's an yeah. event event organised for others organised. And we had an example where somebody um, was the subject of some inappropriate sexual uh, in, intent. Um, there was physical touching involved and mm-hmm. – this this lady was spoken to and she was she didn't realize that she had been the target of something she just thought it was something went a bit it, it happened you know i i'm i'm a i'm a grown woman yeah i get used to this kind of inappropriate behavior it's like men do that yeah right and i think it was even when someone said to her hang on a minute, you you shouldn't feel that you could, you've got to turn up to an event such as this and then be worried about what's going to happen to you you should be able to turn yeah. up like everybody else or every other man if you like and just think, well, I, I have a safe space. And what happened was that we also found out that other people had had a very similar experience with the same alleged perpetrator, but nobody was prepared to be the one. And the, yeah. and, and I suppose the, the question I'm trying to get to you about is, well, we've got this sequence of 
unsubstantiated or unfulfilled complaints, what worried me at the time was that what if the next person came along and I said, oh, yeah, you're not the first. And then they go, I'm not the first. You knew about this. You've done nothing. But I can't do anything. because. So how can I act on unsubstantiated claims where there's no process followed and yet still look someone in the eye and say, I knew, but I didn't do anything? I think that's where we've got to differentiate between I know something, but I can only do something if there is a formal process. Actually, as soon as you know something, particularly as an employer, if something has been brought to your attention, then you have a duty to act on it. Now, you don't have to go in and be accusatory, but you can sit someone down and say, I've heard something that's quite worrying. And I feel the best thing to do is to bring it to your attention. Um, So, yeah, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be tough. But and they're probably going to deny it. Yeah. Who said? Tell me. Give me examples. Yes. Yeah. And you can protect that person. But actually, that one conversation might be enough for them to change their behavior. Even if they don't acknowledge it to you, they might acknowledge it to themselves and they might start to be more careful. Um, And I think what is really interesting is what we're talking about is this acceptance of behavior where people kind of brush things off and go, well, you know, it's just what it's like around here or, well, you know, I'm a grown woman. I should expect it. Um, I can, I can deal with it. But like you say, why should you have to? Um, But actually what we do is we kind of, we've got so used to turning a blind eye to certain behaviours that it's really hard for us to challenge them now. Mm. And that's why it took a movement because it was that safety in numbers, those collective voices. And yeah, it's really important that if you're feeling uncomfortable, the chances are someone else's as well. And so find an ally, find someone that you trust to speak to, find someone who can help you, stand up for others if you see it happening, check in with that person, was, you know, was that okay with you? You know, or did you feel uncomfortable? Do you want me to report this for you? Do you want any support? You know, whatever it is they might want or divert, distract or basically call it out. If it's a safe place to do it and you can call it out, you know, you can say it in such a way of, be careful there, you know, that's not acceptable anymore. Um, And it might just be enough. But unless we start to be brave enough to do that, and it does feel, you know, it's scary. The first time you call it out, it's scary. And the second time you call it out, it's scary. But the more you do it, the more people will join you doing it as well. Mm. And definitely safety in numbers. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the yeah. collective voice is what makes a difference. Yeah, I had a situation six, seven years ago where I was with a group of uh, male friends who I'd known for some time. In a, in a club situation, sort of a society club sort of situation. And one of them wasn't aware that I was trans or transitioning at the time. And 
I, I guess looking back on it, and I'm not, uh, I'm not allowing this person permission to have done what he did, but he did that sort of scene from Crocodile Dundee where he he grabbed me between the legs and said, "Yeah, it's what's down there," sort of thing, in a very kind of bantery, blokey sort of mm-hmm. thing, and there was contact. It was uncomfortable, and I was left aghast at someone who sexually assaulted me really i mean yeah even if even if i wasn't trans it would still be a sexual assault at the moment and i remember not necessarily laughing it off at the time but by, by being a bit like you pick up a cat or a rabbit by the back of the neck you could become a bit kind of fight fight or freeze i froze and i was really yeah. in that kind of like shock and it took me three days i think to kind of start to start to, th- to replaying it in my mind all the time. I'm replaying it, I'm replaying it. What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? And I suddenly thought, wow, I'm doing that, aren't I? I'm, 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 I'm blaming myself here. I'm, I'm, I'm yes. not, yes. I'm trying to make excuses for this person. And what I ended up doing was sending them a text saying, I need to talk about the impact of your inappropriate sexual conduct the other day. And I need to have a phone call with you. And they've picked up the phone. I said, I don't want you to speak or say a word. I just want I just want to tell you how I felt and how that made me feel. If you want to say something after I've spoken, that's fine. But I don't need you to do anything. I just want to tell you how I felt. I did it. And at the end, they just said, I'm sorry. And we both hung up. And that gave me my power back because I, I didn't yeah. I didn't need to ruin that person's life over this incident. I, I, I could put it in context as banter, as a bit of a laugh. Um, but what I wanted to do is make sure they realised the, the laugh went too far and yeah. I didn't need to take it any further. But that, that takes a certain kind of strength and resilience in, in your character. And I know yeah. that not every every target of inappropriate verbal, behavioural, whatever it may be, is able to say no and reown it. Or that person wouldn't maybe even responded in another way and dismissed or not listened. Yeah. And of course, the other thing you've got there is you've got bystanders yes. who stood there and let it happen. And actually, yeah. as a bystander, you can intervene, you can say something or you can distract or you can, you know, mm. did any of them say to you, are you OK? You know, that was a bit off or anything. Did anybody come to you? It doesn't take much, does it? I think they laughed yeah. at the time because yeah. it was that kind of environment. So. Yeah, yeah, I didn't get a lot of support, but I did talk to one of the other people who was in their group at that time and told them how I was feeling and then told them what I planned on doing in terms of this owning, taking control back. And we didn't speak about it after that, but they knew that I'd had that conversation as well. So it, yeah. it made me feel better that I, in my case, I had a, I had witnesses, three or four witnesses, although they didn't defend me at the time. They laughed at the time, but I, I – yeah, and yeah, it, it's having had my own examples, my wife's been through examples, I really, really understand the complexity of this yeah. and the challenge of actually standing up and saying something. It is. It's incredibly hard. And um, I think for me, you know, I tried to stand up. I tried to fight uh, to make sure this didn't happen to anyone else again. I felt responsible for all of the people that – um, you know, I was responsible for in an organization, which I'm talking about 500. I'm not just talking about my team. And I just sort of went, you know, I can't possibly let this happen to any of them. And so I fought and fought and fought. And I was so sure that obviously they're going to see this is bullying. And, 
you know, you come away from things like that with so much anger and hatred and injustice and all of those really negative emotions. And I've had to work really, really hard to turn that around. But one of the things I've really learned is that you can't change things from a place of anger. You can never do that. And so, you know, I ended up in a position where I've absolutely surrounded myself by amazing people. Um, they're helping me now with the Stop Hurt at Work campaign, where we're trying to get workplace bullying recognized in law so that you have the same level of protection in the workplace. There's still huge numbers of people who aren't protected, um, freelancers. You know, if you look at something like the film and TV industry, where they go on different jobs all the time. So there's lots and lots and lots of work to be done. Uh, but you know what? There are some amazing people out there doing this work. There are some amazing people out there making a difference in their own organizations. Um, they're starting to have more and more of these conversations, which is all just absolutely fantastic. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, Joanne, that you were in the conference last year. So we run the United Against Workplace Bullying Conference in November in Anti-Bullying Week each year. And that is really helping to get the subject out there and Oh, just bringing everybody together to say, it's okay to talk about this. It's okay. And you are not alone. You're not the only one this has happened to. And there is help. And we are trying to make a difference. I'm trying to build those collective voices to really push that through in legislation as well. What you said there about not speaking from anger, speaking to educate and there's a saying that, as a professional speaker, there's a saying that we, we often use, speak from the scar, not from the wound. So if you're speaking from the wound, it's all about me, it's my own trauma, it's my own thing. But once you, once you, once you have the scar, you can step back and you can then think about, it's about everybody else, the bigger problem, the challenge, without always bringing it, centering it back to you and reliving that trauma because of the mental health PTSD. So I completely understand. Yeah. You, you've got to heal yourself first. Yeah. And, and, and not sorry forget the anger but don't let you not become driven by anger become driven by outcomes by what the change you want to see isn't it yeah definitely and the way that I put that is that um, you know most of the people are angry because their values are being compromised in some way and so I say to them just remember you're driven by your values not by your anger and that's so important to remember I like that that's a that's a great note to uh to, to start winding up driven by your values not your anger i think that's that's a fantastic yeah, punchline to end on thank you um we've been chatting oh, over an hour now and uh you know before we got on to record and it's been fascinating talking to you again i know we talked a lot during your uh, uh conduct uh, against workplace bullying conference last year how do people get hold of you how do people get involved in the conference if they listen to this you know how can they get hold of you so the best place to go is the website, which is conductchange.co.uk. And on the website, there's, um, if you check on the menus there, you'll see the UAWB conference, United Against Workplace Bullying. There's also the Stop Hurt at Work 
campaign. So again, it's on the main menu. Have a look in there. Have a look at the work we're doing on legislation as well. Um, and we're also, if you want to share your story and help add to the data collection, then Speak Out Revolution are our data partners for the campaign. And you can add your voice to um, their uh, data as well. You can do that anonymously. So there's lots and lots of different ways that people can get involved and help influence change. Fantastic. And if you go there, you may even see my video from the conference last year when it gets published soon. So yeah. Uh, you will indeed, yes. Go and check that out. Excellent. Thank you. Nikki, that's amazing. As ever. Thank you so much. Um, and also a huge thank, thank you to you the listener for tuning in for getting to the end i really really appreciate and value that uh if you're not already subscribed then please do uh, tick the box and uh subscribe on your favorite platform for future episodes of the inclusion bites podcast that's b-i-t-e-s uh do share it with your friends tell me about you tell your colleagues about it as well i've got more and more exciting guests lined up that i'm sure you'll be equally inspired by over the next few weeks and months and of course if you'd love to be a guest i'd love to have you on uh, said welcome. I welcome suggestion of feedback to joe.lockwood at uk. And finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood. It's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.